welcome back to Dose of Support, a podcast where healthcare professionals share their stories and find community. Let's learn from each other and utilize some self-care in healthcare. I'm Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner, and I'm here to help our guests have a platform to share. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider and neither are my guests, but we do encourage you to seek out care from your own professional. This podcast is not affiliated with any employer. And let's also remember to protect privacy and abide by HIPAA. It's hard out there. So let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned. Welcome back, self-care squad. This is take... I don't know, take four, take five. I don't know. I've recorded this and re-recorded this huddle several times because I I was just on fire. Like I was just, you know, metaphorically, I was just like in the moment and really passionate. And I was like, I can't sound like a crazy person. So I kept like erasing it and like making it perfect for you guys. And I just thought I should be honest about that. Um, Because, okay, so this week I wanted to just give a moment of reverence for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who truly is an American hero, who truly protected all Americans and really advanced the rights of Americans, which is just an amazing, she did an amazing job and she should not have had to worry about the vacancy on the court in her final moments. And so it shouldn't be like that. And she literally fought until the very end for us. And I wanted to give her a moment. And I I just get so worked up about that. So I want you all to vote. Would I want you all to vote for Biden? Hell yes, I would. I think you all know my political views. But I want you all to vote and make sure that you're registered to vote. And this is why. If you are listening on Wednesday, the day that this episode airs, I will be at the DMV. And okay, so y'all know I moved in July. And when you move, you got to change your address on your license because I'm registered to vote at my old address, right? So I have to get my driver's license changed and then I have to re-register to vote. But guess what? We're in a pandemic, so I can't just walk up to the DMV and get an address change. And in my state, you can't do that online. Like I physically have to be at the DMV because pff, they're assholes. I don't really know. So I had to make an appointment the month, it was over a month wait to get into the DMV, hence why I'm going today. And I'm going to get my address changed on my driver's license. I don't even need a renewal, you guys. I don't even need a renewal. I just need to change my goddamn address. Um, And then I can re-register to vote at my new address. And I know that I'm not alone in this. A lot of people are moving. They're using the pandemic to change their situation. Or maybe they've been forced into a different situation. Like people lose their jobs and they've been moving in with family and friends. People have been consolidating their assets because they've lost so much. I mean, we're heading into an economic recession, whether or not we 
you know, have foreseen that. I, so I think a lot of people might be in this situation where they need to change their address and check your registration because I knew that I would have to do this before the election. And then, you know, you talk election and, and then with, Justice Ginsburg dying, it just makes you, I just got so fired up. And so on all the other recordings of this huddle, I got so fired up. And I just want you guys to know that like, I put so much love into the podcast. And the reason I wanted to speak up and tell you to check your registration to get out and vote is because I have privilege. I have this microphone in front of me. I have a platform and it is my duty to use this to advance our our society however I need to do that. I, so it's my job to use this platform for good. It's my job to use my privilege to help people that don't have the same privilege. And if you don't understand your privilege, I would be happy to have you reach out to me and help you talk through that. Um, If you've never had to worry about an election before and you just went out and voted, you probably have privilege that you might not understand quite yet. And that's okay because you got to start somewhere, right? But there are people that have been suffering no matter who's been in office. They've always had to pay attention. So if you've been apathetic or disengaged, just know that, you know, that's a place of privilege. And so I wanted to use this space that we have at Dose of Support to offer any open conversation and to just encourage you to get out there and vote and engage with this process. All right, I'm going to take a breath and we'll end this huddle by saying, y'all know, maybe maybe you know, my husband is a respiratory therapist. I just, full disclosure, I am coming with a knowledge set of respiratory therapy because of my husband. He's taught me a lot. And so I had a really lively discussion with Joe, the respiratory coach this week. So I hope you guys keep an open mind and enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Dose of Support. He's a registered respiratory therapist, a clinical instructor, and he classifies himself as the respiratory coach with over 20 years of experience as an RT and here to tell us a story about progress is the RT coach, Joe Lewis. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Vanessa. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you here and your sassy Southern draw from all the way from the Dallas Fort Worth area. So welcome. Um, you are the first RT that we've had on the show. So let's, let's start there. What is an RT? So an RT is um, actually specifically a respiratory therapist, uh, RT. My wife is actually an RT also, but she's a radiology technologist. So when I say RT, I'm talking about respiratory therapy. And uh, the field of respiratory therapy is uh, fairly young, actually. Uh, But a respiratory therapist is actually somebody who specializes in the cardiopulmonary system in understanding disease processes and understanding how to treat disease processes and understanding how to uh, the therapies that come along with treating these disease processes and anatomical alterations that come with them and and managing you know mechanical ventilation 
and and oxygen therapy and and uh, and other various uh, you know skill sets that come along with just taking care of people who who unfortunately are unable to breathe adequately on their own. So you are an expert in lungs, and you're an expert in heart, and you're an expert in gas exchange, vascular system related to the pulmonary cardio system. I mean, it's it's really so much more than helping people breathe, right? So um, what kind of training goes in to being a respiratory therapist? Um, anybody who's looking to get into healthcare, obviously, there's some core curriculum that you're going to have to have anytime you're seeking out any type of educational degree. Uh, for the respiratory therapy, we're kind of in a, in, a, in a point right now to where we're moving from primarily an associate's degree uh, field to where uh, hopefully by the year of 2030, I think our national organization, the AARC, is, uh, is the American Association of Respiratory Care, is looking to uh, require a bachelor's degree to get in to for entry-level respiratory therapist. But as it stands right now, for the next uh, 10 years, uh, the minimum requirement is an associate's degree at an accredited uh, respiratory care program. And then the passing of a national board exam, uh, the, the therapist multiple choice exam, and then the clinical simulation. And then you apply for a license and you can now work as a registered respiratory therapist. And is that a state-based license or is it a national exam that you can move between states and still practice? Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, great question. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a national exam. So everybody across the, the, the country takes the same exam uh, from a, on a national level. But then licenses are granted on a on a state-by-state basis. So like I am licensed okay. in the state of Texas. If I want to go work in Minnesota, I have to apply for a license in Minnesota. So my Texas license does not grant me privileges in Minnesota. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's very similar in nursing, actually. So I, I get what you're saying. Um, so tell me about you currently teach as a clinical instructor. What is the what is going through school like? What kind of clinicals are there before you get even to that big test at the end? Yeah, so I, th- I think programs are set up differently across, uh, probably across the, the, the nation, actually. But for the most part, the programs that I've been involved with, uh, clinicals usually typically start in semester one. And, you know, there's always didactic work that comes with this. This is the classroom teaching, the theories, the concepts, you know, the, uh, the lab work that comes uh, with, with learning how to be a registered respiratory therapist. And then you take that and move into clinicals. Um, typically, uh, I think, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, Vanessa, but I think uh, most programs probably get started in clinicals in their first semester uh, okay. on some level. Uh, and then you're taking those didactic and those classroom theories and concepts and critical thinking components and, and, and actually applying them to patients. And it typically starts very, very small. So like in semester one, you may only start with listening to breath sounds and assessing vital signs. And okay. then in semester two, uh, you move into doing things like administering actually actual therapies, like doing aerosolized medications and, and, and meter dosed inhalers and dry powder inhalers and doing CPT and, 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 and Metaneb and IPPB and these different therapies that you typically see um, throughout, throughout all areas of the hospital, but most commonly on the, the general care floor areas. And then around semester three, four, or five, and if you're in a bachelor's degree program, maybe a little later, um, 
you'll you'll transfer into where you're actually working hands-on in an ICU, learning how to take care of an intubated patient, how to take care of you know a tracheostomy patient who requires mechanical ventilation, uh, you know your your BiPAPs and your different your more your more critical elements of the field of what we do. Uh, it typically comes around semester three or four uh, as you get in and learn those didactic. Nothing we do in clinic is before our classroom or our didactic teaching. Gotcha. Okay. So for the listeners that might not know anything about this, I, I really want to be cognizant of that. You had a lot of acronyms in there. Okay. okay. So <laughs> we talked about aerosolized medication. So like a nebulizer treatment, and maybe people have heard about that, like an albuterol nebulization. Um, but you also spoke about um, CPT. And <laughs> I know all about that, but can you explain what CPT is? Yeah, CPT stands for chest physiotherapy. And this is actually the art of, of using our hands uh, or a mechanical device to actually apply external percussion or tapping uh, some people say beating on the outside of the chest wall in a therapeutic motion. When I say beating, I don't mean beating, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but definitely uh, the, the application of pressure to the outside of the chest wall with the hopes of breaking loose consolidated mucus to allow it to move towards the upper airways. When, when mucus, we can get mucus from moving from the parenchyma or from the alveoli into the larger airways, then we can more effectively help our patients uh, cough and clear those secretions, which is what they need help doing. And then for the listeners, uh, Joe mentioned like BiPAP, which is just a form of, you know, non-invasive ventilation. Maybe you've heard of a CPAP before and it's similar, just a different type of therapy on a machine similar to that. And so if you're just unfamiliar and you're listening, just know that respiratory therapists have a wealth of knowledge and can apply these, you know, just a ton of different therapies that, you know, so I just wanted to like put it out there that even if you didn't understand everything that Joe said in what is studied in school, um, that's okay. You can, you can Google it, but I wanted to kind of highlight a few things that, that you mentioned. Um, all right. And what is the board exam? Like, are you sitting for a test and then doing like, a practical demonstration? So the board exam is actually 160 questions, multiple choice exam. You have three hours to take the exam. So you're given about a, a little over a minute per question. Uh, only, only 140 of these questions are actual real questions. You don't know the 20 questions that are fake, what they call practice oh, questions. Geez. Yeah, they are assessing them to see if they could potentially be real questions down the road. Yeah. But but you don't know which or which. And so you go in there with the mindset to, to have to master 160 questions. And, and your goal is to make the high cut score. Now, the high cut score is what will give you the opportunity to sit for your clinical simulation exam. Okay. Now, what happens is, is you can, and, and I don't know why this is like this, Vanessa, I really don't. Because what there is, what there is in the field of respiratory therapy is there's two different credentials. There's the certified respiratory therapist and there is the registered respiratory therapist. 
Okay. The certified respiratory therapist is somebody who has taken the therapist multiple choice exam on the national level, but they did not make the high cut score, but they made the low cut score. Because they didn't make the high cut score, they cannot sit for their clinical simulation exam, which if they were to pass, they would be a registered respiratory therapist. Okay. Uh, it's weird because as a certified respiratory therapist, in some states, you can still get a license. Uh, the okay. CRT may be able to find a job somewhere, maybe. But the world we live in now, it is most likely that you, have, you must be an, a registered respiratory therapist, an RRT, to, to be able to find opportunity to work because that has been claimed the minimum entry level position. Once you make the high cut, you can then sit for a clinical simulation exam. And that clinical simulation exam is uh, an exam where you're giving, I think you're given 16 different scenarios and you have to collect data throughout the scenario. And then you have to make decisions based off of the, the, the data you collect. So there, there breaks down into information gathering and then decision making. Okay. And you have to show that you can collect all the relevant data. And if you do so, then you collect points along the way. And then if you make the right decisions and you collect points along the way, and at the end of it, you pass and you are now a, a registered respiratory therapist. Awesome. That must be an amazing feeling. And for you, that happened 20 years ago? <clears throat> 20 years ago. But respiratory therapists don't just work in a hospital either. Where else can you find one? Yeah, so you can find uh, not just in the acute care hospital, but also in the long-term acute care setting in uh, the uh, inpatient rehab setting. You can find them in some nursing homes. You can find them in home health. And so as a respiratory therapist, you are not, you are not confined to working in one area. And, and even within the hospital itself, in the acute hospital setting, I spent most of, of, of my time working in adult trauma and adult ER medicine. But there's other therapists that I know have been practicing for 20 plus years, and they've never stepped outside of a neonatal ICU. So they've never taken care of, 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 of a patient that weighs more than, than you, know, you know, five or six pounds. So you can specialize further. And I actually know of some RTs that work in sleep labs where people are getting evaluated if they have obstructive sleep apnea, things like that. Um, and they work, they do overnights in a sleep lab in like a clinic type setting. Yeah. 100%. There's so many, so many places for you guys to go and you can work nationwide and even internationally. There are inhalation therapists or, you know, other, other termed respiratory therapists in other countries. And I don't know, can you speak to that at all? Do you know anything about that? So, I do get a little bit of, of, of interaction with people from other countries uh, through my, I have a YouTube channel. And so I get a lot of, con a lot of, a lot of reaching out from, from other, other areas that, you know, they're just looking for insight. I know, I want to say in ho maybe Holland, if I'm not mistaken, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think maybe in <laughs> Holland uh, and in Ireland, they don't have actual respiratory therapists. What they have is, is physiologists. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot of the same work, just a different title. Right. That's actually what I've heard from the UK and Commonwealth countries that they, they use a different title, but it, it basically is a respiratory therapist. Right. So, um, there might be people listening internationally. We do have some listeners, um, 
in in Canada and Australia and a few a few Commonwealth countries that maybe are like, yeah, I've totally worked with someone that does that that stuff. <laughs> right, so, I love it. Yeah. Okay. So awesome. I I obviously love this role. I cannot say how many times my uh, fellow friendly neighborhood RTs saved my ass or. I rolled me into another dimension when I was a, <laughs> a super new grad nurse and yeah. needed a lot of help. And so RTs are, you're so much more than what you do. You're really just this huge integral part of the team. And um, anyway, I digress. Do you see yourself represented in the media? Oh, uh, not adequately. Uh, but I don't know if, I don't know. I think I think the media has a tendency to uh, think of healthcare uh, kind of like maybe the average person does. They think doctors and nurses primarily. So, so I don't, I don't really see it now. Obviously, uh, through this this pandemic, we've we've, we've received more uh, media yeah. attention. But, but I, 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 so the answer is no. But I also don't see much. Uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech—you know, pathologists. I, I don't right. see a lot of 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 a lot of the uh, other branches of of medicine represented. So, so the answer is no. But I also don't complain about it. I don't. I don't. I don't whine about it. I just just yeah. know that we're not the vision that everybody thinks of. And a lot of that isn't even the media's fault. A lot of that, in my opinion, is Hollywood's fault because yeah. when you see TV shows revolving around healthcare, what do you see? It's always doctors and it's always nurses. And I love everybody. So I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But I think that's what bleeds over to the media to where it's doctors and nurses, doctors and nurses. Yeah, I I do have a problem with that. And that's why I asked the question. <laughs> because I'm like, here's the thing, everyone else is doing the work. And, and certainly physicians, there is a hierarchical system that's present in America and in other countries as well, that physicians get all the glory. But here, here we are at the bedside doing all the work. And it's, what's hard is then people don't find your profession. We don't, we don't grow your profession. We don't, you know, progress your profession forward. And so uh, I hate how like a nurse is represented on TV, for example, as just this like ditzy, whatever. And really like we're, we're fucking keeping people alive (laughs) and you're, you're keeping people like, like when everyone is like, Oh, thank God this, this person did the, you know, thank God. And I'm like, no, thank your fucking team that saved your ass. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, It's definitely a team approach. Uh, yes, you know, it's funny yes. you say that because I was, uh, I'm, I'm probably too old to be on TikTok, but I actually saw a TikTok just not too, maybe yesterday it was where there was a nurse who had a stethoscope on. And one of the comments on her videos was, you're a nurse. Why do you have a stethoscope? You're not a doctor. And, and that mentality right there across the, the, you know, layman's person's mind just shows the the and it's not their fault but it shows the lack of knowledge of what we do and what these tools are used for and how multiple disciplines use a lot of the same tools it's not it's not that a stethoscope means you're a doctor right 
Right. And um, just for the record, nurses are doctors, pharmacists are doctors, physical therapists are doctors. Like there are so many people that we apply, that we should apply the term doctor to that we don't because the fucking patriarchy. Welcome to the patriarchy. You know, anyway. So here I am on my soapbox. Um about the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> why don't we why don't we take a break and when we come back, Joe is going to share a story from practice, some self-care, and maybe his vision for respiratory therapy moving forward. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break. We have Joe Lewis, our respiratory therapy coach with us. In his 20 years of experience, he's probably got a lot of stories, but Joe, lead us down the storytelling path. Tell us your story. So my story is going to take us back about, I don't know, six or seven years. I was uh, an educator at a, a college here just outside of Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, we, we had our we had our students make a do a do a uh, presentation for us. They had to do an oral presentation, and the title of this oral presentation was "Why did you choose respiratory therapy?" And this particular student opened up her presentation, and she went. She took us down this road of an ER experience that she had, and she had she was ex, she was experiencing an acute uh, exacerbation of COPD, and and she was panicked. And she was anxious and she was in the emergency room. And through her presentation, she talked about this one beacon of calmness, this, this, this person that was in the room uh, that, that made her, even though she was scared and she was, she was uh, extremely just nervous and anxious, she thought she was going to die. There was this Aww. one person in the room who gave her hope. And, and it was this person's calmness and their demeanor, and it was their presence just in the reassurance that, hey, you're going to be okay. We're going to take care of you. Yes, we're going to put a tube in your throat to help you breathe, because that's what we tell people, right? We don't, mm-hmm. we don't say we're going to put an endotracheal tube in your trachea. We, we you know, <laughs> just, hey, we're going to put a tube in your throat. We're going to help you breathe. Uh, we're going to put you to sleep, all this stuff, right? And, yeah. and that's what happened. And, and she was uh, ultimately extubated, and a couple of days later, and ultimately goes home and then decides to go into respiratory therapy school. It was this person (gasps) of calmness was the respiratory therapist in the room. Wow. And and she remembers this very uh, distinctly. She doesn't remember a whole lot of of everything else, but she remembers that this person had identified themselves as a respiratory therapist. Now, the story continues to she – uh, accesses her records uh, back to her hospital day uh, and finds out that that respiratory therapist was myself. <gasps> so it's really cool because she's telling me this story and and I knew that I was the respiratory therapist that was working in ER a lot around that time. I didn't actually remember her exact story because I always carried myself that way. Uh, I had been an RT uh, when the time of her ER admission had happened. I'd probably been an RT for about eight or nine years. 
And so I was comfortable in the job. I was confident. I, and I always tried to never panic uh, because yeah. I think that only exacerbates things. Yeah. And so it comes out that, 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 that I was the RT that led this person through a bad part of her life with this acute uh, exacerbation of her COPD into actually wanting to become an RT. And she is now a currently licensed RRT. Now, this story has nothing to do with me. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not my story to tell. It's hers. But what it did for me is illustrate to me that something that we – you know, we know what to do and we know when to do it in the setting and when it's time to do it as healthcare professionals, all nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, you know, everybody, physical therapists, everybody, we know what to do. But I think the things that go unnoticed are the way we do them in a, in a, in a room full of chaos. and, And we know how these rooms can get, we're preparing for an intubation and everybody's running around everybody's setting up different stuff and, you know, nurses are pulling drugs and RTs are setting up in the tracheal tubes and doctors are getting ready with the laryngoscopes and all this stuff. It's something that has to remain a focus on our half, on our behalf. And that is the patient is seeing all this. Yeah. And if everybody, I, I, I'm not going to say if everybody, I'm just going to say for me, I've always tried to be the calm one. And if we can just chill and not panic and not <laughs> And not exacerbate the anxiety because uh, truthfully, honestly, Vanessa, if, if, if we could have probably just, just broken her anxiety, we probably could have kept her off the ventilator. Oh, okay. Because of all the craziness that was happening, you're not going to get somebody to calm down because of the storm happening in the room. And so it just, it just, it just, you know, solidified in myself that there's elements of what we do even when it's not an element of what we do. And it's, it's how you do it that exactly. apparently like in this situation. And I'm like still like stuck on the, oh my God part where you were like, I was her RT. Yeah. It, this, and- this is one of the stories that sticks out in my mind when you ask me to, you know, he's like, let's tell a story. This is one of the stories that's going to stick out with me. This, this student graduated and, and I think, uh, one of the things that sticks out to most of me and I still have them pinned on my wall in my office is the thank you notes that her grandchildren wrote me. And these are like four or five year old grandchildren. So you can imagine the crayons and the thank you misspelled and all this stuff, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it really just solidified me what I do. Did she know like when she started school and you were her teacher, did she know that you were that RT at the time? She did not. And you guys just figured it out. This came out in about the fourth semester of her school. Wow. Oh my God. And, and, and it, and it just all kind of, it was really the moment that, that she discovered it was, um, it all, let me just say this. I'll never forget it. Wow. I'm still like, what a small world, like the six degrees of separation. Yeah. And and you you clearly inspired her, which is amazing. So speaking of remaining calm, how do you remain calm? How do you practice self-care? What do you teach to your students so that they can take care? It's a hard job. You're, you're seeing hard things. You see people go on life support and you see people die. And um, how do you cope? So 
I think where I want to take this 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 answer is is I think one of the things that my students absolutely 100% do not ever prepare themselves for is the moment that they're going to extubate a patient terminally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a terminal extubation. We're going to take, we're going to remove this in the tracheal tube for the purpose of this patient passing. This is probably one of the single most impactful moments that, that I get to share with my students and probably one of the greatest impacts they get to, to have in, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this was part of the job. Yeah. I tell them to just be human when they cry. I tell them cry. I say, it's okay. If, if you don't cry the first time you do that, think about it. The first time you see a person die because of the disease process, we don't, we, we're not the reason they die. We're just the mechanism that's removing the, the false mechanical support. So, right. so yes, we play a role in it, but we're not the reason they're dying. They're dying because of a disease process. And, 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 and honestly, in my opinion, eight to nine times out of 10, it's 100% the correct move to do. Yeah. And, and so they feel somewhat sometimes responsible. And yeah. I tell them to, I encourage them to feel every emotion that, that they want to feel in that moment. I never ask a student to do this. And then immediately ask them to get it together. Let's go do something else, right? Like I give them the time to, to, to experience all of these feelings because this is what is lacking in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We're treated like we're fucking robots and we're not. We're not fucking robots. Right. We're human. And to be a part of someone else's death, no matter what the role of it is, if you not fucking move to every inch in the ending of your emotions, then there's something wrong. Yeah. I don't care how many times you see it. I do know we get desensitized to it. Yep. But this is one of the things that that I encourage my students not to get desensitized to. And this yep. is one of the things that, you know, you've got chills over me right now just talking about it. Um, you know, you know, you said you want to get in the field, so let's get in them, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, I I just think that that we're talking about healthcare. We're talking about taking care of humans and and one of the key elements of that is when death comes, sir, sir, enjoy the, the, the winds. But when death comes, if you don't feel it, then I think you've lost a little bit of what we're in it for. Yeah. And so I encourage them to completely feel all of those emotions. And, and I do it myself. I, I feel every single emotion. And then, um, you know, I, I get home and the way I deal with it is, is I just love all my family when I get home. Yeah. I just I just enjoy the presence of them and I just soak up every minute of it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I don't know if I personally feel a whole lot of need for winding down or for dealing with 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 the stress. Uh, I love what I do. And yeah. I think I think when I think for me personally, when, uh, you know, I think when you just love what you do, then all the emotions that come with it. I personally just embrace every single one of them. I love seeing that trauma patient walk back into that unit six, seven months later, right out. They've got out of, uh, you know, they're out of rehab now and they come back in. They don't even remember us, but they're so thankful. Yeah. That's, that's the things I hold on to, to, to solidify my role in, in, in this, this, this world of healthcare. Other than that, I just, I just come home and just embrace every minute with my family at the end of the day. 
you sound like a really concrete thinker, like, <laughs> because I'm the, t- I'm the type of personality that when I'm feeling all of those emotions, that's where I get stuck. And so I think that there's probably people listening that are a mix of both or find it easy to turn it off and turn it on. Um, so it sounds like, like your self-care is really family time and acknowledging. Cause I want to clarify, I want to clarify here. Those, those feelings, when you say you get stuck in them, uh-huh. I, I, I wouldn't say I get stuck in them, but I definitely don't push them aside. So what what my what I think what I'm saying is is my self care is taking these feelings and bringing them home, and then embracing my family in every second I have with them, and understanding that one day this is going to be our reality. So until that reality comes for us, I'm I'm soaking up every second of it. These moments, these sad moments, the losses in healthcare actually fuel my my involvement at home. And, okay. and so I don't, I don't definitely don't just push them aside and say, okay, forget that. That's all, that's all done. I don't want to, I don't want to leave you with that impression. Okay. Okay. Because I feel it all the time. Uh, I carry it with me. Uh, you know, I can, I could tell you, I could probably give you a list of the last 20 people I, I, I terminally extubated and the, the, the shoulder touches and the, the, the tissues that I give, I, 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 so I, I, I dig so deep into that stuff because I think that that's almost more valuable to me than the wins. It's such an honor. Exactly. It's such an honor to be with people at that time. Yes, it is. So it sounds like you take the feelings then and you are able to redirect them. Correct. So, that, so, that, so they're with you, but you redirect your energy. And I don't know how to teach people that. You know, like I, it sounds like it's something that you taught yourself or something that's part of your personality to be able to take the feelings and take the emotions and the hard stuff and, and redirect it towards living and being present. And like, how do you, how do you teach that to someone else? Yeah, you can't, (laughs) you can't, I'm an educator. I'm telling you right now, there's some things you can't teach. I can't teach my students how to care for sick humans. I can teach them what to do for sick humans, but I can't tell them, I can't teach them kindness, compassion, empathy. I cannot teach it. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I I also coach a baseball team. I cannot teach competitiveness to kids. You can't teach it. You have it or you don't. And, 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 and what you said is exactly correct. It's a redirection of emotions of, of empathy towards the patient and then bringing it home and turning it into gratitude for my blessed life. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, but can you teach it? No, I've been trying to figure, I've been trying to crack this code for a decade now. (laughs) To pivot a little bit. I have Mm -hmm. seen some advanced practice registered respiratory therapist programs pop up. And I've been really curious about, um, I mean, RTs already aren't practicing at their full scope because hashtag the patriarchy holds you back. Um, For example, those who are listening, RTs are trained to intubate or insert breathing tubes. RTs are trained to insert an arterial line or an art line. Um, So RTs can do all these things, but at a lot of hospitals and in a lot of states, the medical boards or the systems at those hospitals say, no, 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 only a physician can do that. So can you speak to how 
RTs are being held back and how an advanced practice degree, you know, what you might know about that, because I've heard it's just like this emerging thing. Like there's only a couple programs out there. You say a couple, I, I was only familiar with one. So maybe there's a few other ones that have popped up, but it's definitely a new thing. I see it being of extreme value to the field of respiratory therapy. Uh, I see it being kind of equivalent to a nurse practitioner uh, to yep. where you can work yep. alongside a physician in a caregiver role uh, with, with ordering privileges and things like that. So yeah, I, th- I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I, I, I think what I want to talk about just a little more is what you mentioned about the patriarchy holding us back. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a hundred percent correct. It's a, it's 100% correct. There are elements at play that prevent us from operating at our full scope. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm going to be real honest with you, Vanessa. <laughs> the number one thing holding RT back from, from operating at our full scope is RT. Ah. Since the time of our progression, so to the time way back in the late 30s, early 40s, RT started becoming something. And then we started, you know, we were just moving oxygen tanks around early way back in the day. And, and then we started aerosolizing medication, giving albuterol. Well, back then it was Broncosol and Alupent and other medications. And, and we're still pretty much that same thing. So here's the biggest thing holding RT back right now. The biggest thing is the task-oriented mindset of, I'm not going to say all, but in my opinion, the majority of respiratory therapists is a task-oriented mindset. They get their patient workloads for the day and they go, I have to do this, 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 and this. And then I get a break and then I have to go do this, 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 and this. And what they, it, it really what happens is they say, if I can do this, 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 and this quicker, then I can get a longer break. I can check my social media. I can gossip with my girlfriends or my boyfriends. We can talk about the Super Bowl. We can talk about whatever else. And we have more, we care more about downtime than we do about patient care. And that's the single one biggest holdback to the progression of respiratory therapy in 2020. If I could get every respiratory therapist to shift their mindset from being task oriented to patient outcome driven, the, the, the patriarchy that holds us back would start to see something of value and yeah. maybe would relinquish some of these, these, these barriers. I like that you're, you're, as your profession, you're, you're kind of taking responsibility or you're, you're influencing people to take responsibility for your own profession and move it forward instead of, instead of me blaming the patriarchy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I do on a whim all the time. <laughs> like I blame them for yeah. everything, but, but, um, truly I, so I like that there's, there's that own self ownership over how you can change things because you're well, right. You, you can yeah. influence your own practice. You can, you know, each, each individual listening, no matter where you work, um, or what kind of specialty you hail from, you know, you do have your own power. You just need to find it. If I just offended any of them, I can tell you what they're, what they're going to say is like, well, management, it's the man. It's not even a patriarchy at the doctor's level and the administration level. It's our, it's our second tier level yeah. of management. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that this idea of productivity versus this idea of, 
of, of outcomes and quality. And I've always believed that if you'll just take care of your patient to the fullest, that the money will just roll in. If we can get patients out of the hospital quicker, off the vent quicker, out of ICU quicker, out of the hospital quicker, reduce readmissions, those four things right there, oh my gosh, just think about it. The money's just going to be saved. It may not be earned, but it's going to be saved. Yep. And that's, that's, I think, the message that, that I think is lost in all of the task-oriented therapy that we do. Well, Joe, I think we could talk for hours. Maybe what we should do, <laughs> maybe what we should do is have you on for another episode later down the line. And, um, oh, and before I forget, I have some Patreon questions. Hold on. Oh my gosh. I'm such a terrible host. Hang on. Um, one of the questions was, how do you step away from the sad stuff? Which I think you really answered pretty well. Yeah. I, the, the sad stuff makes me feel human. I don't, yeah. I like to cry. I like to feel nervous. A lot of people don't like to feel nervous. I actually like to feel nervous. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a weird person. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go with yes on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the other Patreon question was related to COVID and RT's going from like a, a COVID unit to a non-COVID unit and floating between those units. And um, you had said before we started recording that you have not gone into the hospital environment since COVID started, but have you heard anything on that? So I do think this is, I, I think, I think what this question is related to, I think it's a common practice. I think at least in the area from the, my, my fellow respiratory therapists that, I, that I'm uh, in constant contact with, I think this is uh, not something that's been off limits. I can tell you that my first day back in clinic on on this past Friday, uh, we were in a 20 bed unit. There were three COVID patients on that unit and okay. we weren't involved with their care, but you had other staff members who were involved with their care and with non-COVID patients. So, okay. so I think it's a common practice as far as, as my views on it. I don't know if I can speak on them. Um, I think this this Patreon particularly was like, it's kind of wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, think, have, I, I can see that. <laughs> which, which we can we can totally be judgy on here and say, yeah, that. yeah. I I don't think that there's enough information on COVID. <laughs> I don't think there's enough administrative. At like, let's be honest. Um, there's not enough leadership from the federal government telling everyone how we should respond to this. And so I think each state is kind of responding differently. And it's just kind of a mess. Everyone's kind of doing the best they can. And we still don't have a lot of knowledge on the topic. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think what this Patreon was getting at is like, do you have staff going from COVID <laughs> to non-COVID? And so clearly the answer is yes. And in my yeah. work environment, they've actually isolated the COVID from the non-COVID and, and kept that staff on 12-hour shifts. And then they just rotate it's just been, it's crazy out. It's a crazy time it's out crazy. there. And, and, and you're exactly right. We don't know enough information. I get, I get questions on my YouTube channel all the time. How do you mechanically even like COVID? I told myself, I don't know. Like there's not enough information out there. Nobody, nobody really knows. Nobody has a clear image of, of, of the best practice right. from what I can find. And so I, I just think everybody, like you said, is just doing the best they can. We're winging it. We're all winging it. All right. So Joe, if people just love how passionate you are and if people are like, Joe's a good time, how can they connect with you? Yeah. So uh, they can find me on, I have a, a YouTube channel and that, that YouTube, you can find me as at respiratory coach. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Respiratory Coach. Uh, you can always send me an email at uh, respiratorycoach at gmail.com. And any of those avenues are going to be able to get you in touch with me. We're maybe going to have to have another episode yeah. with like, like you can, uh, I'm going to have a glass of wine next time. <laughs> well, you have your wine. I'll have my beer. Yeah, there you go. So, all right. So for my listeners, you guys know where to find me. I'm on Instagram at dose of support. I am on Facebook in our private dose of support group, and you can email me at hello at dose of you can also submit your story there. So find find a way to do that. And if you're really enjoying the show, please rate and review. That really helps me grow, helps people find us. And thank you so much, Joe, for being on today. Listeners, I will be back in your ears next week. Every role in healthcare is important, and these experiences matter. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest and a whole different story. Until then, make connections, you guys. Give each other a dose of support. Dose of Support is written, produced, and edited by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by Rafael Sequeira. Don't forget to rate the show, write a review, and leave feedback wherever you listen. I'm punching out until next week, where we try to find some self-care in healthcare once again.